we come to God's word, we're looking at John chapter 3. John chapter 3, we're going to read from 1 to 21. We've finished up the book of 1 Thessalonians. We persevered through it. I hope you were blessed by it. Now we're going to take um, a, a little break from um, more expositional books, and we're just going to go over two, two, two weeks, uh, the doctrine of the love of God. So we're looking at John chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For anyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask the Lord for help to be able to understand this word. Heavenly Father, thank you for this familiar word to us, this precious and treasured word. And we pray that it would indeed come alive to us, that we would be able to hear the Lord Jesus speak to us, and that his words would be sweeter than the honey that drips from the honeycomb. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, my family and I, we were on a group text, and I said something to one of the boys and they, one of the boys responded, I mean, I, I said something to the group, and, I, and one of the boys responded, brah, right? Now, I don't know if you're uh, familiar with that kind of lingo, but that's how they talk these days, okay? And so I had to respond by saying, you mean dad, not bro, right? <laughs> and he said, 
No, Dad, that's not how I'm using the word. The meaning has evolved. <laughs> now, um, I didn't have a quick response at the time. You know, we carried on with the day, but later I was like, oh, this is what I'm going to say. I said, oh, you mean words have evolved like he and she now means they and them, right? Nope, nope, <laughs> right? That's n we're not going there, right? I thought that was a good quip, but t timing was a little bit off. <laughs> and so they had moved on, right? You know, some words do evolve. Their meaning, it does evolve with time. Social pressures can be high. The Bible, God's holy, unchanging word, unfortunately, is not off limits from those pressures. Do you realize that the word love has been affected? You know, love doesn't mean hate, like how some words have been changed to like mean the exact opposite, like how bad can mean good, right? But there has been imported into the word love um, a lot of things that we might think love is, but which can differ from what the Bible says love is. In fact, the doctrine of the love of God is a powerful doctrine, but it might be robbed of its power. Not that it really is, but the way that it's used. Because love has been turned into this squishy, sentimental, vague idea that can like do no harm, but the real harm is is that people can get a false conception of God. They view God as like this weak, kind, caring, grandfather figure. For example, here's one um, of the evangelical church's sacred slogans, one that's very popular, that God's love is unconditional. God's love is unconditional. I'm sure many of us have heard it. Sure, a lot of us might even be helped by it. And the phrase is meant to be inviting for the sake of mission, because many people think that God is angry with them. So they're afraid to approach him, and they try to say something like, no, God loves you. His love is unconditional. Or there are people who find themselves like they don't measure up in life in all sorts of ways, and then even with God, they feel that. No, God loves you. His love is unconditional. Turn to him. Is God's love unconditional? What if it's not? Well, I want to show you that God's love is unconditional, but not in the way that we think, okay? And if you're not clear about this, then the thought that God's love is unconditional, the way that you understand it and the way that you might even use it, it could lead to problems. Like, you, you might presume upon God's kindness if his love is unconditional. Like, you can do whatever you want, and when you're presuming, you're the one calling the shots, not God. Some might even go so far as to question God's love or blame God when things don't go their way. If he loves me, then why is my life turning out this way? I'm trying to help people get over, in trying to help people get over like this one obstacle of approaching God, we create other obstacles, other problems and God remains small and weak. And so for the next two weeks, the hope is that we'll think about God's love and get a sharper, pointier view of his love where it can cut to the heart. Because if we don't believe like in a substantial love, we're not gonna get a substantial God. 
And I want to clear up some misconceptions so that we can then instead marvel at the God of the heavens and the earth, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God who says he is love. Okay? Um, so this week we're, gonna, we're looking at this very familiar passage and this famous text. Three points for us. First point is this, that God's love initiates action to completion. God's love initiates action to completion. We're going through the story of Nicodemus. I'm going to go right through it, right? Nicodemus, he's a religious leader. He is intrigued by Jesus, so he comes to him by night for fear of the religious, other religious leaders, okay? Je, uh, Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. There needs to be a whole new birth that takes place in order to enter into the kingdom of God and be called a child of God. And Nicodemus is so confused, right? He reasons out loud with Jesus, how can a man go back into his mother's womb a second time? And Jesus doesn't make it any easier for Nicodemus when he says that one must be born of water and the spirit. That's verse 5, right? See, there needs to be a cleansing that takes place. That cleansing comes with the water. It's not a physical ritual cleansing, but a spiritual one, one performed by the Holy Spirit. Now, this would be confronting for Nicodemus because he was a devout Pharisee. And that meant that all of Nicodemus' religious achievements have amounted to nothing. In this section, we get another distortion of, of God's word in a way that it could lose its power. And it's the idea of being born again. It's familiar to us. But we forget that to be born again is not something of our own doing, right? I did not choose to be born on June 21st. Write that down, right? <laughs> I did not choose to be born at all. I had no choice in the matter. Likewise, Nicodemus, he did not choose to be born or even be born again. Look at John 3, verse 7. Do you not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again? The wind blows where it wishes, you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. This is the Spirit's work. It's not man's work. And from this teaching, we get the doctrine called regeneration. I wonder if we've heard of this doctrine of regeneration. God sends his spirit into a person to revive the believer's soul from death to life. See, because we need a far more radical change than just um, some lessons to be more moral or nicer. Regeneration is an expression of God's love and his grace. How? It's God's active initiation of sending Jesus to bring light into the world. And light specifically to the darkened mind of Nicodemus. Because unless God acted, man would still be in darkness, clueless, just like Nicodemus was, right? But in his love, God graciously promised and he sent, he followed through in sending his son. And not just that, God sent his son, the shepherd of his sheep, to reach the lost very personally like this encounter with Nicodemus. And it's just a beautiful contrast that John presents for us. In John chapter 3, we get the story of Nicodemus. What happens in John chapter 4? We get the story of the Samaritan woman, right? This scandalous woman 
and this respectable Jewish leader. Both lost. Both need regeneration. That means there's hope for anyone and everyone. And from this angle, maybe we could say, okay, God's love is unconditional, right? But what I want to emphasize is that God's love is an initiating, powerful, sovereign, life-giving love. I can't decide to be born. I can't birth myself. I can't even do CPR on myself to revive myself, right? And what's interesting, frankly quite odd, is that some Christians will insist that to receive Jesus, that was their choice, their decision to believe, their desire to invite Jesus into their lives as if they took the initiative. Now, if that's how you came to know Jesus, that's fine. But we all need to recognize that there was a spiritual work that was done in your heart. You didn't even know about it. That's what John 3 is telling us here. And we need to come to terms with this word where Jesus is saying it was his choice, the Spirit's sovereign choice to regenerate your spirit and your life before it was you, your choice to accept Jesus as your Savior. That's what it means to be born again. I hope that's how we understand that very popular phrase. The doctrine of spiritual regeneration, it clarifies who does what. It's God in his love who initiates action. That's the first step. But what about me, the believer? Do I just do nothing? Am I a helpless agent? No, we're called to believe in Jesus when we hear this good news about him. The theologian Gary Williams in the UK, he explains this interplay between what God does and what I do this way. The Holy Spirit works not by abolishing the human mind and will, but by renewing them so that the believer himself believes. And he goes on to draw out God's loving initiative. He does not leave us in death while forcing us to do what he wants. No, he breathes new life into us. Christ comes to us as a sovereign yet gentle Lord whose regenerating spirit enables us to respond both to his command to repent and believe and to his gentle invitation to find rest in him. And in this way, God's love is unconditional. In that he takes the initiative. There is nothing that we can do, in fact. And yet there is this condition that we would come to believe in this God, in his regenerative work through Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you're not a Christian here. Maybe you're not sure if you're a Christian. But you're listening to this. You're hearing these familiar words, perhaps, and this is news to you. That's good. Maybe it rubs you the wrong way. Either way, that could be the Holy Spirit coming around to your dead soul, perhaps, poking, examining, preparing you for regenerative surgery. And for those who can clearly say that they have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, that it wasn't of our doing, isn't that a wonderful, marvelous act of grace of God? Is this life-giving spirit in you causing you, then, to be a life-giving agent? That's what we'll come back to at the end. But that's our first point. God takes loving initiative. Secondly, God loved the world that needed saving. Jesus goes on 
And he, he gets to that famous verse, right? John 3.16. sums up what's really at stake. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, right? For Nicodemus, following the Jewish law and even being a teacher of Israel could not save him from perishing. Only Jesus could. Nicodemus' works, his knowledge, his devotion, nothing from within himself could save. Only something that had to come from the outside of him, sent from God, could save him. And John would emphasize what Jesus came to do in the next verse, verse 17. He did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Right? Jesus came to save. We get that. But did we get what Jesus said about the world? What did Jesus not come to do? To condemn the world. Why? Because it was already condemned. The Old Testament law wasn't going to save the world. It wasn't going to even save Israel. Only make very clear the record that it was under condemnation. What else did Jesus not come to do? What's that? He... he Jesus came to save, but did he come to save the whole world? No, not everyone would be saved. Some actually believe that God loves everyone. Because, what does John 3.16 say? God so loved the world. But then they just automatically think that God will then save all as well. It comes from a distorted misunderstanding of God's love, and it leads to other distortions, like how we view the world. If you travel in Greenwich on Putnam Ave, you're going to come to a church somewhere around where Greenwich Ave is, where on the corner you'll see a sign, God loves all, no exceptions. Is that true? I want to say yes and no. Right? No doubt the Bible says God loves the world, but does God save the world, the whole world? That's a no. Some will perish. I don't know what that church teaches, but if a church said God loves all, no exceptions, and does not qualify or clarify, then it could lead to distortions. I know, it's not the best advertising, right, to say that the world is condemned and you might be perishing. <laughs> But you could only hope that the scriptures are taught accurately and faithfully and fully. Like remembering to include verse 18. What does verse 18 say? John 3, 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. I have come across Christians who say God loves all. Maybe you have too. And then when you start talking about hell and perishing and condemnation, what might they say? What might people say? I've heard this phrase. A loving God would never do X, Y, and Z, right? It's interesting. They insist that God's love has, be, has to be unconditional, but I'm going to put conditions on God's love. There's something not right about that, right? But where does all that come from? From these assumptions like John 3.16, it's so inviting. God loves the world. And then the, the, the wrong understanding of love leads to a, a, a wrong understanding of world. 
Do you know what the world means in John, in John's gospel? We might think, oh, it's the world. It's neither here nor there. It's a neutral place. If you're optimistic, you might think it's a good place. Again, those could be fatal assumptions. What does John mean by the word world? The world that God so loved. I want to say that the world is that sphere of existence that is under condemnation. And why? Because the world opposes God. I wonder if people, if, if we may have missed that about the world. In fact, it's so significant that I, I want to show you um, some examples from John's gospel. Five examples, to, and let's see if it holds up. When you, when you hear or see the word world, see how it's used. Is it a neutral place, a good place, or a bad place? Let me start with John 1.10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Speaking of Jesus, okay? John 7, 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. John 15, 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. John 17, 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And then just lastly, this is from 1 John 2. 1 John 2, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. How's the world, the word world, used? Don Carson, the commentator, he sums up the use of the word world in the Bible this way. It's very, he goes, in brief, God loves the world and Christians had better not. <laughs> That's like most clear from uh, the 1 John passage. And maybe we've heard, of the, heard this phrase, we're in the world but not of the world, right? Another example, trying to connect all the dots here. We're fighting against sin and so what... We're in combat against what? The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world is not a good place. And what can we say? God loved the world to show that his love is greater than the sin and evil of the world, not because the world was so lovable. God's love for the world was not affirming its rebellion but trying to restore its dignity by saving people out of it and bringing them into the kingdom through faith in Jesus, right? God's love is dealing with a runaway world. Some are saved, but God does not save all. It's already under condemnation, and it's going to stay that way. See, now that's putting a sharp edge to God's love, isn't it? We start to understand what the word world means, and we're, we're not meant to see that God's love will do no harm. No, his love is so great that it would even be able to act so thoroughly on people who would downright oppose God Almighty. That's what makes God's love so powerful, doesn't it? Nothing can overpower God's love, not even our sin. In fact, we can come to God even if we can't clean ourselves up. 
In fact, we need to realize we can't clean ourselves up because we are entrenched in this fallen world. So Jesus came to love and die for sinners, not saints. So have you come to Jesus, recognizing who you are? Can you admit that? And Jesus, he would just be consistent in his teaching. He would teach the believers what? That, to do the same. He calls us to love our enemies. Why? Because that's what Jesus did for us, because we were once enemies of God, part of the fallen world that was opposed to him. God loved the world. Now we understand what the word world means. And that brings us to our final point, that God's love is unbelievably specific. God loved the world, but God did not send Jesus to die for the world. He loved the world, but he died for sinners, but not all sinners. This is when our belief in God's love really gets challenged. It's when his love discriminates between those who believe and those who don't. God loves all, even the fallen world, but does he save all? No. There's like a different kind of love at play here in the Bible then. It's not about degrees, I love you more, I love you less, but it's a, a love of relationality. It's depending on the relationship. Just like a spouse's love is equal for like a uh, parent's love for the child. But they're different still. So God doesn't love all identically, even as he says he loves the world. I mean, that's only fair, right? Like, is it wrong for me to think that I love my children a lot more than my children's friends? No. Likewise, God loves his children, but those who are not part of his family, they get a different kind of love. And this is where we start to see our definition of love, that maybe my view of love is different from the way that the Bible uses it. Our definition might need to be filled out more. And so um, Don Carson, again, he helpfully shows us the different ways that God's love is mentioned in the Bible. Um, there's five ways that he categorizes for us, okay? First is there is this mutual love between the father and the son. Second, there's God's love for creation. Third, there's God's love for the world. Fourth, there's God's love for his children. And then finally, there's God's loving discipline of his children. Five different ways that the word love is used. I'm going to go through these briefly. But why it's really important to know this is because we're trying to get our understanding of love from the scriptures rather than from importing what we think love is, which is often a romantic kind of love, maybe from Shakespeare or Jane Austen or, or whatever we see on social media, like this intense kind of feeling of care. No, let's work it out from what the Bible says. First, there's this mutual love between the father and the son. This might be the most important view of love that we need to like brush up on. See, because before God um, made the world, before he even made us, he existed as a mutual loving community of persons, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. John 17, 24, Jesus is praying before he dies, and this is what he prays. John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus wants 
the father to share that love that he had, the father had with his son, Jesus, with the disciples. See, before creation, God was, he is. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existed mutually in, in dwelling love. That's why God can say God is love. It's who he is in his being in essence. And this father-son relationship is what defines love for us, not the romantics, not poetry. How does the father view the son? What does the father say to Jesus at Jesus' baptism? This is my son with whom I am well pleased. And why? Because the son would faithfully trust and obey his heavenly father. That's love. Secondly, God's love for creation. Now, nowhere in scripture does um, it say that God's, God loves his creation, this inanimate creation. But he speaks of the creation as good and that God, the creator, cares for his creation. And Jesus would make an analogy like between the lilies and the grass of the field and how they grow and how they don't have to toil or spin because God cares for them, right? And he makes this comparison so that he could help convince the disciples that God cares for you just like he cares for the lilies and the grass. So don't be anxious. This is a way of expressing God's love. And then there's God's love for the world. I've explained it. It's a clear reading of the text. God so loved the world, but now we see how the world is distinguished from the creation. Creation is created good, but the good creation has fallen, infected by sin, brought under condemnation, and that is the world. Creation is the inanimate order, whereas the world is that system of moral order that is in rebellion against God. And so included in the world are those people who fall under God's condemnation. This is the world that needs to be reached, not to change it, although any kind of good change is good, but to call God's children out from the world and into the kingdom. Then there's God's love for his children. See, we have to recognize God's love for his saved children that's different from, his, from the unsaved in the world. And I've said this. There's a difference between being a child of God and a creature of God, right? It's another big misunderstanding that people might have. People think that God loves all and everyone. Everyone is a child of God, but no. A child of God is someone who has been adopted into the family of God by faith in Jesus. The creature of God is not. You know, in, in the Bible, in Malachi, and it's actually picked up in the New Testament, in Romans, the Bible make this distinction as clear as night and day. When God says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. That was God's sovereign choice that the, the younger would serve, that the older would serve the younger, right? And that's the Bible's point, that there is one line of humanity that would be in God's favor. The other line would be, be condemned. One line would be born again. The other line would not be. And then lastly, there's God's loving discipline of his children. As God's children who have been adopted into the family of God. Sometimes we are disciplined either for wrongdoing or for greater purposes. John 15, 9 says this, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. 
Jesus is telling his disciples to abide in my love. But how? By obeying the commandments of God. If they don't obey the commandments, well, there are going to be consequences. There might be discipline in store in order to return the believer into full communion, full abiding with God. Right? Not eternal condemnation, but temporary consequences to bring disobedience back to repentance. There's a big difference there, right? It's loving discipline exercised in order to bring a child of God back. Um, I mean, a loving father is going to discipline their child for the good of the child, right? Now, when we hear that, we are thinking of all the bad cases. It is often very flawed when um, parents discipline their children, but we've got to stop projecting our flaws onto God. No, God's discipline is always loving and perfect. So I hope we can see those five uses of love in the Bible. If we're sensitive to the scriptures, God's love looks different depending on the relationship. What kind of relationship do you have with God? What kind of love have you experienced? What kind of love do you want to experience? By way of application, as we bring things to a close, let me clarify by summarizing what have we learned from that question that I opened with, right? Is God's love unconditional? Yes and no. That's why it's not a very helpful question. Yes, God's love is unconditional because there's nothing that we can do to receive his love. Even believing the gospel, that is a work of the spirit who has caused you to be born again. But we also see how it is conditional, right? Because we need to receive Jesus' invitation. We need to respond or to accept. But then we also have to come to acknowledge that, oh, this is the sovereign God that we are being saved by, the one that I have opposed, the one that I need forgiveness from. That's the condition. And then when you start to see how unbelievable um, this love is from God, you're starting to recognize I was so undeserving for all those times of being unconvinced by his good word. This was a glorious sacrifice that Jesus exhibited, for, shared, did for me when I wanted to live for my glory. This is his faithful commitment even when I would be totally uncommitted to him. See, that kind of love that overpowers our sin, that has real teeth, a real point where it would convict me and cut me of his greatness and my smallness, right? Do you have a taste of that love? Once you get a taste of that love, you know what it does, right? It can't help but make us love God back in a beautiful kind of way where he is changing me so I could love him better and even love others more. All because of the death that we deserve, Jesus would bear. He would take that condemnation in our place at the cross. The life that he lived, perfect love and obedience with the Father, he would give to us when he was raised from the dead. Turn to Jesus, and with him, the Father would say to you, with you I am well pleased. Turn to Jesus. And if you have turned to Jesus, how are you being shaped by his love? You know, the strategy of God is to love this world so that they would hear the good news of Jesus, right? 
Are we on board with that strategy? We're called to love those in the world, our neighbors. How are we initiating love for them? I mean, just to remind us and even push us, Jesus would teach us to love our neighbors, I mean, love our enemies. Loving our enemies, it's not an easy thing to do, especially if you've never been taught or exhorted to love your enemies by considering how Jesus loved us in the same way, right? Loving enemies, it's, it's really hard, especially if you've been harmed. It requires special thought and prayer. That's like a separate case. But before we get there, how will we be facing the world? Prayerful love? Or are we following the culture, polarizing? Sure, we're to be distinct, but we still have a face towards the world. You know, evangelism, outreach, it's hard, but it's made much harder um, when we're not praying for those that we're thinking of in love. Evangelism is never easy, but it is easier when it's done right, in the right way, first prayerfully loving those in the world to be called to the Lord Jesus. See, would we start that or would we Resume that, pick that up again, praying for our neighbors by meditating on God's love for us first. Prayerfully loving our neighbors so that we would be life-giving. Let's pray that that would happen as a church. It would continue to happen. Let's pray now. Heavenly Father, in your word you tell us to rejoice always to pray without ceasing, to give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for us as the church. And we know you're going to do this work. You're going to make us holy and blameless. You are faithful. You will surely do it. We want to come alongside you and partner with you and be participating in that. And so we pray for your grace to help open up our hearts to receive your love, to meditate on your love, how great it is for us so that we would love you back and love one another and love even the world or the people in the world that need to hear the message of Jesus. Help us to be that kind of mobilized church, that kind of church on fire where we have the spirit like tongues of fire just having us speak words of truth. Convict us, put this fire in our belly so that we would live for you, live on mission, love you, O oh God, and care for and pray for the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.